0: Hello and welcome to the podcast for the April 2012 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Dara Mohammadi to discuss some of the highlights from the April issue. Just before I speak to Dara to mention that our main focus this month is an interview I did with Professor Peter Langhorn from the University of Glasgow in the UK and this concerns his review looking at the feasibility of specialised stroke centres in low to middle income settings. More on that in a moment. But Dara, welcome, and walk us through some of the other highlights from the April issue.
1: Thanks, Richard. This month's editorial looks at an international project to bring together work on vascular disease and neurodegeneration. This project, which is called Standard for Determining the Vascular Contribution of Neurodegeneration, should serve as a catalyst to establish the role of vascular factors in cognitive decline. Vascular pathology is very prevalent in elderly people and it's widely acknowledged that vascular disorders contribute to cognitive impairment and dementia in later life. Now there's lots of evidence that vascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes and hypercholesterolemia increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease which has led to a rethinking of the role of vascular factors in the potentiating of and even triggering of neurodegenerative disease. But vascular factors have been pretty much neglected in many areas of research in Alzheimer's disease. And there are a number of reasons for this, including focus on the identification of biomarkers of disease stage, uncertainty over the prevalence and relevance of vascular factors in Alzheimer's disease, and lack of clarity over diagnosis. The editorial takes a closer look at some of the other factors that could be addressed to aid researchers in these two fields to reach a consensus, and discusses some of the potential ramifications of this project, which we hope will be a real success. This month in context feature looks at the possible neurotoxicity associated with the trade in electronic waste, e-waste or electronic waste is anything from computer monitors to TVs to mobile phones a lot of the waste that's produced in high income countries ends up in low to medium income countries with major hubs of activity in Ghana, Nigeria and China where it's sold to people who take it home or to small workshops to recycle it now components that can be reused are sold on but the bulk of it is then processed by either acid leaching or burning to extract valuable metals like gold, silver, and copper. And it's during these processes that neurotoxicants like lead, arsenic, and chromium are released and can poison workers. The big worry is that pregnant women and very young children are getting poisoned, leading to irreversible neurological damage later on in life. In the feature, we discuss the potential dangers involved and available data, which, given the relatively recent emergence of this trade, are fairly sparse.
0: Thanks for that. Dara, sounds very interesting. And just briefly signpost the other items, particularly the research.
1: We have the PREDICT trial, a positive observational study that aimed to validate the CD angiography spot sign for prediction of hematoma expansion. We have a post hoc subgroup analysis of data from the SANAD trial, which aimed to predict treatment outcome for patients with focal epilepsy. And Graham Hankey and colleagues present the subgroup analysis of their ROCKET-AF trial, comparing the safety and efficacy of rivaroxaban and warfarin in patients with atrial fibrillation and transient ischemic attack.
0: Thanks very much, Dara. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, let's now hear about a very interesting review. And this concerns the concept of specialized stroke units in low and middle income settings. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of that review, Professor Peter Langhorne.
2: The traditional view has been that degenerative diseases like stroke have been um, a problem of the, the developed world, the Western world, but that picture is changing very fast. And in fact, even now there are more stroke events happening in lower and middle income countries than in the wealthier parts of the world. And in some countries, for instance, China, uh, stroke uh, is becoming the, the main cause of death. So it, it's actually becoming one of the real big conditions uh, globally, and, and particularly as countries go through a process of development.
0: And looking specifically at specialised stroke units, certainly in a country, say so here in the UK, we just take it for granted that they are Around, dotted around geographically uh, there to provide exactly that. When did they first come into being and what characteristics or features did they have then or, or do they have now?
2: The stroke unit story in the UK is an interesting one. Um, Fifteen years ago, they were relatively uncommon and tended to occur in places where there were local champions wanting to provide that kind of level of, of care within their own hospital But what's happened with, I think, the increasing recognition that people who've had a stroke do measurably better in terms of their recovery, they do better if they're managed in a specialised stroke unit, then that's led to the development of national guidelines and then clinical uh, priorities being implemented um, really in all the countries of the UK. And as a result, um, in most parts of the UK, Um, hospitals who receive stroke patients will have specialised stroke unit care. And I think some of the observational studies that have come out um, since those changes have really reinforced that, you know, the prognosis from stroke seems to be getting better and better access to specialised stroke unit care is part of the reason
0: for that improving outlook. Uh, Indeed. And just a follow-up to that, I mean, recent developments, particularly things like alteplase and getting access to blood thinning treatment like alteplase within a very specific sort of limited time window, three or four hours, is crucial, isn't it? As well as having the specialists within the stroke unit.
2: Absolutely. I think it's important to recognise the sort of stroke unit story and the alteplase story are separate but sort of related and by that I mean that, you know, alteplase has a very distinctive role in reversing acute ischemic stroke, but it's much easier to provide alteplase in a service that's well established, uh, that has a good organised stroke unit system of care. However, the areas that we were covering in the in the review paper. We're really saying to what extent can the basic components of stroke unit care, the everyday practice, be applied in developing countries um, to improve care even where technology wouldn't allow them to give alteplase.
0: Indeed, and, and let's now move on and, and talk about that. You do comment on it in, in a review paper. So I guess from a simplistic point of view, I'm asking myself this question how could you possibly sort of transplant complex, sophisticated stroke care units with multidisciplinary teams and substantial human and technological resources, how can you sort of parachute that into areas of the world where development is either evolving or, or still still very poor? We can't be talking like with like here, so are you talking about some principles that could be applied?
2: You have put it exactly correctly. I think the areas that we've covered in the review paper are really talking exactly what you mentioned there about trying to identify characteristic features of stroke unit care where the principles might be able to be transplanted to settings where resources are less well available. And the particular um, resources we're talking about here are largely skilled staffing. Uh, nursing, medical, and therapy staffing. So, so what what we've done in the in the article is really explore some of the characteristic features of stroke unit care, and discuss, and in some cases speculate how they might be translated into a setting where fewer skilled staff are available. And I, although I mentioned that a lot of this is speculative. Uh, my two co-authors have both achieved this in their own way. One, Linda de Villiers, uh, did this in, in a, a township hospital in, in Cape Town, and Jayraj Pandian has done it in a hospital in, uh, in the Punjab. And so these are people who've, if you like, who've, who've walked the walk as well as <laughs> talked the talk Um So we tried to sort of gather that experience that my co-authors have as well to try and make the speculation a little more grounded in in solid experience.
0: Can you give a little example of how that might work then in in resource terms, both human and technological? How could you actually have a stroke unit working in a poor setting?
2: I mean, one example is from the hospital in in Cape Town where they uh, had stroke patients scattered all over the hospital and they brought them into one area, one part of one ward. They then had a nurse who took on, if you like, the championing role of of improving the nursing care of stroke patients. And they, they factored a multidisciplinary component into the ward rounds, did that twice a week, and they, they liaised with families. So we're in, in a setting like that where families provide a lot of care, there was this multidisciplinary contact with the families to ensure that the care they were providing was based on the best principles of stroke care as far as possible. And that particular example, they did a small before and after study and they got a a very significant reduction in deaths in hospital after stroke. Um, So, It was a very um, sort of basic um, approach, but it had quite a profound effect on the prognosis of stroke
0: patients in their hospital. Indeed. And what other obstacles, apart from the obvious ones, like resources, do you think, are there that would need to be overcome to try and set up, establish a stroke, especially specialist stroke centre like the one you've just uh, described in Cape Town?
2: I think that there are, there are, whole, of course, there's a whole myriad of obstacles. Firstly, I think it's got to be seen as a priority, and you can understand that in many lower-income countries, they may well still view the communicable diseases as more of a priority. But I think that picture is slowly changing as more people are living longer to experience the sort of chronic non-communicable diseases. So so one thing is is to see stroke as a priority and to recognise the potential value of organised stroke care. Um, the second one, I think this is a big one, is getting sufficient numbers of staff and and staff with the appropriate skills and this is quite a challenge and I think in many areas um, will be the the limiting factor. Um, I think that the third area that people might think about is lack of, of technology, lack of CT scanners and, and such like. But um, in fact, in a lot of the older trials of stroke unit care were done before CT scans were widely available. And they still showed that improving the basic day-to-day care improved uh, patient outcomes. So technology itself maybe shouldn't be a barrier, but I think having adequate numbers of skilled staff is, is a challenge.
0: Indeed, and one immediately thinks of the support that's required for, for stroke patients. It's a, in, Say in a westernised country, it's about getting a appropriate and quick clinical treatment, but actually rehabilitation goes on back at home, doesn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yes. But
2: I, I think there's still great potential you know in in societies with the tradition of family being uh, closely involved in the care of their loved ones then if we can begin to develop ways of providing education And modest support in that kind of setting, I think there's a great potential for health gain. And one of of the things I would like to see develop is, you know, educational packages and simple practical approaches that can be adapted in local areas to try and improve knowledge, skills
0: and education, you know, about looking after someone with a stroke. Indeed. And, and finally, um, Professor Langhorn, very interesting review this is. It sounds on balance actually that t- despite some of the perhaps uh, immediate problems that one might consider when discussing this issue, you would appear relatively optimistic that it's possible to apply some specialised stroke unit principles in poorer settings across the world.
2: I think yes. Um, there will clearly be some settings, many settings, where it's just not feasible and may not be an appropriate priority.
0: I was about to say, actually, you could see that this can only work if your health system is competent or strong enough to deal with it.
2: Absolutely. So you, you would need some basic uh, foundation stones in place to begin And you would need to have a sufficient number of people with stroke-related disease, stroke disease, to make it justifiable. But there are a lot of areas of the world where stroke units aren't widely developed that are developing very quickly and thinking particularly in Asia and some parts of Africa. And the potential gain there, I think, is substantial and wouldn't require investing in very expensive equipment and Uh, expensive drugs but would require some investment in the quality of their the the number and quality of their staffing
0: well it's a fascinating review and i urge everyone listening to this podcast do read the review um, about specialized stroke centers uh, in less developed settings but in the meantime professor peter langhall on the line from the university of glasgow Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Neurology. And
2: thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss this.
0: Many thanks to Peter Langhorne and to my colleague Dara Mohammadi. And thank you all for listening. See you next month.